Samuel Longhorn Clemens was born 188 years ago on November 30th, 1835. He's known by his pen name, Mark Twain. You probably know about the adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. But today, we're going to talk about his most popular book, which you may not have ever heard of. Welcome back to the Church History Podcast. Today, we're continuing our series on the Zionist movement. But before we do that, I have a little announcement to make. I was working on a book, and I still am working on a book, and I was hoping that I was going to release it in November. But as we were kind of pushing to get it out for November, I realized I was kind of rushing it, and I don't think it's where I want it to be yet. So I'm going to put it off for the new year and hopefully be able to release it in January instead. So I'm sorry about that, but I do want it to be perfect. And so we're going to release it when it's ready. Okay. So like I said, today we're continuing our series on the Zionist movement. And if you're new to the podcast, this is the Church History Podcast, where we tell the story of the church from the life of Christ until today, chronologically. We've told the stories of the apostles the early church, the crusades, the inquisition, the fall of Rome, the reformation, and now we're in the 1800s. We happen to have reached the time of the Zionist movement around the same time as the world is gone wild talking about the nation of Israel. So you might have stumbled onto this podcast doing a search, and if you're new, welcome. Today, we're talking about Mark Twain, He was not a Christian, and he was not officially a Zionist, although he wrote often in support of the Jewish people. So you might be wondering why we're telling his story. Well, I'll answer that question at the end of this episode. However, I think you will see as you listen to the story how this story is important to get an understanding of the church at this period, and also to get an idea of Israel at the point of the start of the early Zionists. Samuel Longhorn Clemens was born in Florida on November 30th, 1835. He was the sixth child of Jan and John Clemens, and they would have one more child. When Samuel was four years old, he moved to a small town in Mississippi. His early childhood was marked by pain. Three of his siblings had died by the time Samuel was six years old. Samuel was very close to his mother Jane and loved her very much. Growing up, his family attended a very strict Calvinist church. The harsh preaching made Samuel feel very uncomfortable. He never really heard about God as someone who loved him, but rather, he heard of the wrath of God and the punishment of God, and also, there seemed to be no way to come to God. There was no work you could do to gain his love, because you're so wicked and vile in God's eyes, and only the ones God has chosen were able to find forgiveness. Samuel wanted to find God and spent his early years studying the Bible. He knew all the Bible stories, and he could explain the Calvinist doctrine he was taught, if anyone was to ask him. Later in life, he would say, My problem with God and the Bible is not the parts I don't understand, but the parts that I do understand. 
Before the Calvinists write me angry letters, I have covered many great Calvinist preachers who shaped America, England, and the world. Samuel, it seems, did not have a great preacher growing up. Living in Mississippi in the early to mid-1800s meant that Samuel also experienced slavery, as it was legal where he lived. This would come out later in his writings, and you will see that when you read Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Samuel would become a voice for the American people, speaking out about injustice in funny and interesting stories. But his childhood was a difficult one. When Samuel was only 11 years old, his father died of pneumonia. This was after Samuel had lost three siblings. Samuel's father was a very well-respected man in the community. He was a lawyer who became a judge. His death was sudden and shocking to the family and the community. At age 12, Samuel left school to work for a printer. He then went on to work as a miner to help take care of his mother. While working in the mine, he overheard someone telling a story at the hotel he was staying in. He took that story and made it into a book called The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calvers County. The book was published in 1865, which allowed Samuel to find work writing. This was the same year that the Civil War ended. Samuel was 26 years old, so at this point he had lost three siblings and his father, survived living in Mississippi during the Civil War, and had now published his first book. But it was the next book that would change his life in good and bad ways. Samuel heard of a very exciting opportunity. Someone had bought one of the Civil War ships and turned it into a traveling experience. This was the first ever in history cruise ship. Until this point, people took ships to get to a location, they'd visit the location, and then take a different ship to return. This ship would take everyone on board to the same location, where tour guides would be waiting for them. Then after the tour, they would go to another destination, and then another, and then eventually home. You would go on the same vacation with everyone on the ship. No one had done such a thing before, and the most elite members of society were signing up. It was not just the boat named Quaker City that was so exciting. It was the locations of where they would be traveling. They would travel to Europe, see the great sights of Persia, and then visit the Holy Land. Samuel talked to a newspaper he'd been writing for and offered to write 50 articles about the trip if they would pay his way. They agreed, and Samuel set out on a trip of a lifetime. On the boat was a large group of Christians. They were excited about this trip to the Holy Land. Samuel was hoping that if he could go to the Holy Land, maybe he would find God and the peace of God that he wanted. Immediately, however, he was annoyed with the Christian group on the boat. They held prayer meetings every night and tried to make everyone on the boat attend them. So, Samuel started a club for drinking and gambling and ran it at the same time as the prayer meeting. They called their club the Sinners. The most annoying thing the Christians did was force the captain to stop the boat and refuse to sail on the Sabbath. The leader of the Christian group was a man named Colonel William Denny. He was a biblical history expert 
and was leading the group. As they arrived at the first location, Samuel was able to see great pieces of art in museums, marble statues, and with each stop, he saw more and more. He even got himself a fancy shave at a Persian shop. For a young man who grew up in rural Mississippi in the 1800s, he was definitely out of his league. But instead of feeling awe and amazement, he felt disappointed. He said the art was old, the paint was chipping away and fading. The statues were no better than the statues in America. The buildings were falling apart, the roads were garbage, and his fancy Persian shave felt like his face had been sculpted. He wrote all of this in the articles that were sent home, and the Americans back home loved it. Usually, when people wrote about Europe or the Middle East, it was to say how inferior this new country America was. But Samuel, just a regular American, was saying what most people were unwilling to say. When the boat landed on the shores of the Holy Land, the group was divided into two. Those who thought they could handle a tough trip would get off the boat and ride horses across the Holy Land to Jerusalem. The others would take the boat and meet the group in Jerusalem. A group of eight men took the tour. Among them were the sinners with Samuel and a group of Christian men, including Denny, the group's leader. What Samuel saw as he rode through the Holy Land shocked him. It was a desert, empty of anything or anyone. They would ride and ride and ride, and ride, and never see a single person. There was no plans. It was as if he was riding through a desert of dry bones. A forsaken land, forsaken not only by people, but forsaken by God himself. Samuel was angry when the Christian men said they had to push their horses so that they could arrive before the Sabbath. Samuel thought they were treating the horses cruelly all so they could follow a rule. He wrote that he thought God would want them to treat the poor animals with grace, much more than following the Sabbath. They finally ran into a small band of people, a tiny tribe of Muslims. The group was excited to find this tribe, but the Muslims refused to allow the men or the horses any water because they believed if the Christians drank from their well, it would be contaminated. So the men continued on. Eight men rode from Damascus to Jerusalem, 150 miles of pure heat. Then the men came to the Jordan River. It was a suddenly beautiful river paradise. Samuel was in awe. And when he sat by the river and thought about the Bible stories he had studied, he felt Jesus. This is why he had come. But the moment's beauty was brought back to reality by the Christian men who immediately found reasons to complain and ruin the experience for everyone else. As they left the Jordan River once again, they were in what could be described as a valley of dry bones. Finally, they arrived at Jerusalem and connected with the rest of the group. Jerusalem had a population of Muslims, Christians, and Jews. What shocked Samuel was how tiny the city was. He walked the outside of the city Taking a fast, brisk walk, he walked all the way around Jerusalem in just one hour. Inside Jerusalem, while there were people, it seemed like a city of death. It was dirty, it was smelly, and the streets were lined with beggars. 
living inside this tiny city were 4,000 Jewish people. However, this group was about to grow because just three years later, the Jewish population was larger than all the rest of the population combined. Seeing the wretchedness of Jerusalem made Samuel ask how God could let this happen to the people and the city he had shown so much love for in the Bible. In our last episode, we talked about the history of Jerusalem, and you can go back to that episode to understand why it looked like this at this point in history. During this time in history, the Holy Land was named Palestine. This was a name given to the land by the Romans to erase the name of the Israeli god. The name is a Greek name for the Philistines, which had become extinct hundreds of years before. I also talked about this in our last episode. Walking around the city, Samuel wrote this, Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. It is sacred to poetry and tradition. It is a dreamland. Then, as Samuel was wondering how God could treat his people this way, the group took a trip down Via Della Rosa. This is the road Jesus traveled with his cross on the way to be crucified. At this point, again, Samuel felt the presence and calling of Jesus. But this was interrupted when he saw the Christian group breaking off pieces of the buildings to keep them as souvenirs, and he was disgusted by this behavior. The tour guide brought them to multiple places, and what Samuel saw were things that he knew were lies. They had been to many different museums in the first half of the trip, and all of those museums had real thorns from the crown of thorns and real nails from the cross, and the sheet a woman had used to wipe Jesus' blood that had an impression of his face. There were five of those in five different places. For the most part, Samuel just ignored these obvious fake relics. However, he completely lost it when he was shown the grave of Adam. Samuel had studied the Bible, and he knew there was no grave for Adam. In an act of humor, he pretended to be overcome with grief upon discovering the graveside of his long-lost relative, and he wrote a humorous satire article about his grief. In this satire article he sent home, he showed the fakeness, not only of the relics, but also of the piety of the Christians who were crying at the locations of the Holy Land tour breaking off pieces and vandalizing the places, all while ignoring the beggars. When it was time for the boat to leave, everyone was excited to get out of the Holy Land and get back to America. Before he left, Samuel bought a Bible with a wooden cover with the word Jerusalem written in the front in Hebrew for his mother. He thought about her often during his trip and how disappointed she would have been to see the reality of what the Holy Land looked like. Once home, Samuel found out how popular his articles had become while he was gone. Newspapers from all across America had picked up the articles, and everybody loved them. The Americans loved to read about an American visitor visiting all these fancy places in Europe and then making fun of them. And they laughed at the jokes about the majority Christian reactions to the Holy Land, and they especially loved the satire grieving article at the Tomb of Adam. Samuel decided to take all his notes and write a book. He wrote the book called The Innocents Abroad, or The New Pilgrim's Progress. 
and it was published in July of 1869, and he dedicated it to his mother. He published under the name Mark Twain, and immediately, Mark Twain was a household name. In Ezekiel, we read the story of the dry bones. Ezekiel is standing in a desert, surrounded by nothing but death, dry bones, and the skeletons of great men who had once been. A sad, desolate, depressing place. But then, God told him to speak to the bones and tell them to come to life. And slowly, the bones start to move together, forming a skeleton that eventually stands to its feet. Then skin begins to grow over the bones until a great army has formed. And then God himself breathed into their lungs and filled them with air. And they came to life. Ezekiel then took two sticks and held them in the air. God said, Israel is divided, but I will unite them as one great nation. And then they will never again be destroyed. And the sticks suddenly connected, growing together into one great stick that is strong and unbreakable. Samuel was in the Holy Land looking for God, but what he didn't know was that he was walking through the dry bones and the desert Ezekiel had written about. Samuel's writings, although satire and humorous, paint a very bleak, desperate, and unlivable place. But God had already started moving in the hearts of people, bringing the bones together. And as we continue in our series, you are going to see that happen. Samuel never again visited the Holy Land. Had he visited again before his death, he would have found a much different place. And if he visited it today, he would be shocked that such a transformation could happen because in reality, only a miracle could turn this valley of dry bones into the oasis it is of the Middle East. Samuel had come to respect the Jewish people even before his trip to Israel. In March of 1898, Mark Twain was living in Europe when the uprising occurred in Vienna. The government was trying to hold the Austrian-Hungarian Empire together, and the Habsburg family wanted the Czech language to replace the German language. There was rioting by the German-speaking members of parliament. The Austrian government somehow blamed the Jewish population for the uprising, even though they literally had nothing to do with the conflict. Because of this, suddenly, Jewish homes and synagogues were attacked in Austria. Samuel was angry by this, and he wrote that the government was using the Jewish people to distract them away from what the family empire was doing. Later in his life, Samuel, as Mark Twain, wrote an article for Harmer magazine called Concerning the Jews. He said that everyone would be angry by what he had to say, and he was correct. He wrote, commenting on the recently held First World Zionist Congress in Basel, that Theodore Hertz was trying to gather the Jews of the world together in Palestine with a government of their own. Twain wrote this, The Egyptian, the Babylon, and the Persian rose filled the planet with sound and splendor, then passed away. The Greeks and the Romans followed. The Jews saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decades, no infirmities of age, 
no weakness of his parts. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? This is the question Samuel, a.k.a. Mark Twain, couldn't explain. How could one tiny nation that every empire has targeted for punishment and extinction survive while all the great empires fell? Every single world empire has blamed the Jews for their downfall. When Samuel was alive, 90% of the Jewish population lived outside of Israel. They had no army. Their culture was different based on the host country they lived in. They didn't have one language. But God began to plant in their hearts that it's time to return to their land. Just like Moses, who was the first Zionist, who had never seen his land, led his people to the promised land without ever getting to set foot on the land. The same spirit that gave him the will and power to lead his people back to their home was calling people again during this time period. Some had tried earlier. In the 1700s, Jews from Spain came to the Holy Land, which was called Palestine at the time, because they were kicked out of Spain during the Inquisitions. Rabbi Isaac and Rabbi Joseph were part of this group, bringing people from Spain during the Inquisitions. In the ten years following the publication of Mark Twain's book, several Jewish groups played pivotal roles in the movement towards establishing a Jewish presence in Israel. One significant organization was called, in English, the Lovers of Zion Movement, which was formed in 1800s. This group was full of Jewish activists, and it was aimed to promote Jewish agriculture and settlement in Palestine, which was at the time part of the Ottoman Empire. And this movement was stage one in many waves of Jewish immigration. One of the important people during this time period was a man named Sir Moses Montefiore, a British philanthropist. He gave a lot of money to help start agricultural colonies in Israel. There was also a group that was focused on helping Jewish people by giving them social and economic conditions, preparing them to be able to return to their homeland. There was also a man named Leon Pinsker who wrote a book called Auto-Emancipation in 1882, which gave Jewish people the idea that they could return to Zion and self-rule. This eventually led to the first Zionist Congress in 1897, which was just three years after Samuel's trip to the Holy Land. This Congress marked the beginning of the Zionist movement which aimed to establish a Jewish homeland. We're going to talk more about the persecution of the Jewish people in Europe during World War I and World War II later when we get to those episodes about the war. But there's two stories from this time period I'm going to touch on quickly. In the early 1900s in Russia, in the area that is today Ukraine, crowds of people went door to door in Jewish homes, raped the women, killed the men, and children escaped out of their homes, running into the winter snow, many dying in the cold. Some of those children survived. From 1981 until 1921, over 100,000 Jews were killed. Jewish people living in Russia fled, and most of them went to Palestine, known as the Holy Land. Some fled to Romania, but that was a mistake because between October 22nd and 24th of 1941, over 100,000 Ukrainian Jews were shot or burned alive 
by the Romanian soldiers that were part of the SS. We're going to cover much more about that in the later episodes. But remember, Egypt enslaved the Jews and then fell. Babylon attacked the Jews and then fell. Persia attacked the Jews and then fell. Greece attacked the Jews and then fell. Rome attacked the Jews and then fell. Russia attacked the Jews and then fell. Europe attacked the Jews and then fell. And America is an empire now. I'm not an American, but I would look at history and think about the promise God made to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. As we dive deeper into the Zionist movement, we have to remember the Zionist movement was not one movement. In the 1800s, there were four types of Zionists calling for Jews everywhere in the world to return to their homeland. The first was a culture of Zionists. They wanted to reestablish the Hebrew language and bring back the Jewish language as it was written. We're going to talk about the one man responsible for this in an upcoming episode. This group did not care about the religious aspects of Judaism. The second group was the spiritual Zionists. This was a group who were waiting for the Messiah. They began to believe that it was their duty to stop waiting, but that God was waiting for them that the Messiah would come once they returned to their land. This group wanted to return to their homeland to wait for their Messiah. The third group was the socialist Zionists. This group was connected to Marx and Marxism. They believed that the Jews could set up the perfect socialist country. Today, the kibbutz are tiny socialist villages. We'll talk more about those villages when we continue the story of the Zionists. The first kibbutz was established in 1910. And if that word sounds familiar to you, it's because it was a kibbutz that was attacked on October 7th of this year. The fourth group was the westernized Zionism, which thought the Jewish state could promote Western ideas in the Middle East. And then the final group, the Christian Zionists, who wanted to help the Jewish people establish the land God had given them. Church history is packed full of the church treating Jewish people horribly. But during this time period, the church missionary movement was changing the world. It was during this time David Livingston from Scotland was fighting the Arab slave trade in Africa. Hudson Taylor from England was in China. Adamire Judson from America was in Burma. Amy Carmichael from Ireland was in India. Mary from Scotland was in Nigeria. John Payton from Scotland was in Vanuatu. Lottie Moon from America was in China. And William Carey from England was in India. God was moving in every country to call men and women to spread the gospel. And the church was a movement to change the world. And next week, we're going to talk about the Christian Zionists. Who were they? And what did they do to help the Jewish people find their homeland? And what was their motivation? Yet, as we see from the story of Samuel, a.k.a. Mark Twain, there were many Christians who were not living up to the calling God has given to us. In this episode, we looked at the dry bones, the desolate. We saw the very start, the beginning of the calling of the Jewish people to return. In our next episode, we're going to look at the different types of Zionists the key players in the movement, but specifically in the Christian Zionist movement. I wish I could end the story by telling you that Samuel, a.k.a. Mark Twain, came to Christ. He did claim to come to Christ when he wanted to marry his wife, and her parents would not allow him because he was not a Christian. But a few years into their marriage, 
he turned his back on Christianity completely. So why did I use his story as part of a church history podcast? Two reasons. One, I wanted you to get a reality, the picture of the empty, desperate land before the Zionist movement. And I wanted you to see the miracle of the land coming to life as Ezekiel had promised. I also wanted to think about the story of Mark Twain as a reminder to us as Christians that people are watching us and we need to be an example of Jesus Christ. So stay tuned for our next episode. We will look into the life of the Christian Zionists and their motivation to help bring Israel back to life.